in February of this year, 2013, I was invited to be the speaker at a Bible conference held by Church of the Redeemer in Mesa, Arizona. The topic for the weekend was titled, Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. During that conference, I gave a series of four lectures. There was far more material than I could ever deal with in just four lectures. Therefore, since that time, I've expanded those initial four lectures into a total of 14 messages, of which you are listening to one of these. I encourage those who are listening to these messages to visit my publishing website at triumphantpublications.com and read for free a written version based on all these 14 messages. These messages are being compiled into a book called Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. The book is scheduled to be released sometime in mid-June of this year, 2013. My website will guide you as to how to purchase a hard copy when available. But if you don't want to purchase a hard version, you can read the transcript of the book by simply going to my website and clicking on the appropriate box titled Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise Transcript. Also, on my publishing website, I've listed links to all these audio messages found on sermonaudio.com under the general topic, Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. May the Lord bless you as you listen and or read about this very dangerous view that is gaining ground, unfortunately, among certain churches and institutions. In this message titled, Philosophies That Paved the Way for Darwinism, Darwin's ideas and influences was by no means some solitary effort. Darwinism has become what is due to the great efforts of others who propagated his devil's gospel. And remember, that phrase, the devil's gospel, was Darwin's own words for his theories. I brought that out in my last message. Without the ideas of his predecessors and contemporaries, the impact of Darwin's views would not have come to the world view that it is, known as Darwinism. Darwinism has impacted so many differing fields besides biology. It has impacted the fields of sociology, psychology, and economics. Well, let's discuss Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus Darwin. Actually, his grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, as early as 1770, added a phrase to the family coat of arms which said, everything from shells, which expressed his evolutionary views. Erasmus Darwin's major work, Zenumia, or the Laws of Organic Life, was a two-volume work published in 1794, a huge medical biological work. Erasmus Darwin's book was the first publication of modern times to embrace a comprehensive hypothesis of evolution 65 years before Charles's publication of Origin of Species. It was Erasmus Darwin who advocated millions of years for biological development. Erasmus advocated some kind of spontaneous generation, meaning life out of non-life. So why didn't Erasmus Darwin's work have the impact of his grandson Charles's work? 
Well, the world wasn't ready yet, plain and simple. By the way, when Charles Darwin published his book, Origin of Species, it was met with great opposition among the zoologists. It was the philosophers who initially heralded it as a great contribution. Let's discuss the influence of the geologist Charles Lyell. The influence of geologist Charles Lyell upon both Charles Darwin and Thomas Huxley was profound. As mentioned in the previous message, Darwin said it was Lyell's two-volume work, Principles of Geology, that completely changed his views that formerly embraced Paley's natural theology, supporting intelligent design for creation to Lyell's uniformitarian views of Earth's geologic history. From 1830 onwards, Charles Lyell's book, Principles of Geology, was one of the most widely read scientific books in England. Lyell's uniformitarianism, when taken to its logical conclusion, said Thomas Huxley, quote, postulates evolution as much in the organic as in the inorganic world. I cannot but believe that Lyell, for others, as for myself, was the chief agent for smoothing the road for Darwin. End of quote. In writing to Lyell, Huxley said that evolution was the implication of his doctrine of uniformity. As mentioned earlier, Charles Lyell wanted to drive men away from the Mosaic record, meaning that Noah's flood could not be accepted within the framework of a uniformitarian view. In the letter that Charles Lyell wrote to his father that I alluded to in another message, one can see as early as 1829, Lyell was already embracing evolutionary views. And this was 30 years before Darwin's publication of Origin of Species in 1859. In this February 7, 1829 letter, Lyell told his father, quote, I am now convinced that geology is destined to throw upon this curious branch of inquiry and to receive from it in return much light, and by their mutual aid, we shall very soon solve the grand problem, whether the various living organic species came into being gradually and singly in isolated spots or centers of creation or in various places at once and all at the same time. The latter cannot and I am already persuaded, be maintained. It is not the beginning I look for, but proofs of a progressive state of existence in the globe, the probability of which is proved by the analogy of changes in organic life. End of quote. It is very clear from these words of Lyell that he was convinced of the evolution of organic life in a progressive fashion, although it was not the same mechanism that Darwin would postulate in natural selection. In many ways, we can see how the views of Lyell and Darwin would complement one another and eventually provide a powerful mechanism for convincing the world that a creator who fashioned the world was an outdated belief. Lyell was enamored with certain aspects of Jean-Baptiste Lamarck's work that advanced the idea that an organism can pass on characteristics that it acquired during its lifetime to its offspring, also known as also known as heritability of acquired characteristics or soft inheritance. 
Lyell was determined to influence people with his views on geology in certain aspects of Lamarck's views. Lyell stated, quote, that the earth is quite as old as he, Lamarck supposes, has long been my creed, and I will try before six months are over to convert the readers of the quarterly to that of heterodox opinion, end of quote. Charles Lyell was a contemporary of the German biologist, naturalist, philosopher, physician, and professor Ernst Haeckel. Haeckel would become well-known later on for his controversial recapitulation theory, which is, or which states, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, claiming that an individual organism's biological development or ontogeny parallels and summarizes its species' evolutionary development, or phylogeny. For the record, I will mention in another message that Heckel's views would be discredited, although some still want to refer to the, his views as being true. In a letter to Heckel, dated November 23, 1868, Lyell said, quote, most of the zoologists forget that anything was written between the time of Lamarck and the publication of our friend's Origin of Species. I have certainly prepared the way in this country in six editions of my work before the vestiges of creation appeared in 1842 for the reception of Darwin's gradual and insensible evolution of species, and I am very glad that you noticed this. End of quote. Although Lyell could not accept all that Darwin said, as is plain from this quote, Lyell did make sure people understood his role in promoting Darwinism. In a letter dated March 9, 1863, to Joseph Hooker, Lyell said, quote, Darwin seems much disappointed that I do not go farther with him, or, or do not speak out more. I can only say that I have spoke out to the full extent of my present convictions and even beyond my state of feeling as to man's unbroken descent from the brutes. And I find I am half converting not a few who were in arms against Darwin and are even now against Huxley. End of quote. Lyell continues to state his impact for promoting Darwinism when he said, quote, However, I plead guilty to going farther on in my reasoning towards transmutation than in my sentiments and imagination. And perhaps for that very reason, I shall lead more people on to Darwin than you than one who being born later, end of quote. And in a letter to Charles Darwin himself, dated March 11, 1863, Lyell said, quote, but you ought to be satisfied, as I shall bring hundreds towards you, who, if I treated the matter more dogmatically, would have rebelled. End of quote. It is quite evident that Lyell, along with others, played an absolutely crucial role in helping to persuade people to, to Darwinian thought. Left alone to present his case, it is doubtful as to whether Darwin's theories would have ever had the impact that they have had. But the combined efforts of Lyell and especially Huxley, Darwinism would eventually triumph over the skeptics. And mind you, the skeptics were the naturalists of the time.
Let's discuss the influence of Thomas Henry Huxley. Thomas H. Huxley referred to himself as, quote, I am Darwin's bulldog, end of quote. Simply put, Huxley was the PR man for Darwin's evolutionary or revolutionary new idea. He is credited with turning the tide in favor of evolution at the Oxford meeting in 1860. When Lord Kelvin, president of the Royal Society, awarded Huxley in 1894 the Darwin Medal, he paid him the highest tribute for his work in the spread of Darwinism. The geneticist Bateson paid him a great tribute when he said that it was Huxley who championed evolutionary doctrine with his vigorous and skillful advocacy that was able to obtain a favorable verdict in the public eye. Interestingly, Huxley acknowledged his disrespect for authority but also extended to his disrespect for authority as it related to God and religion. Like Darwin, Huxley stated that Charles Lyell was one of the greatest influences in leading him to adopt evolutionary thinking. It was Lyell's uniformitarianism, he said, that did as much as anything to pave the road for Darwin. Huxley said that Darwinism provided for us all a working hypothesis that we were seeking. In his presidential ad address at the British Association for 1870, Huxley made this astonishing concession. He said, quote, he discussed the rival theories of spontaneous generation in the universal derivation of life from preceding life and professed disbelief as an act of philosophic faith that in some remote period life had arisen out of inanimate matter, though there were no evidence that anything of the sort had occurred recently, the germ theory explaining many supposed cases of spontaneous generation, in the quote. In a letter to Charles Lyell on June 25, 1859, Huxley stated, quote, I by no means supposed that the transmutation hypothesis is proven, or anything like it, in the quote. What Huxley was admitting is that transmutation, which is the changing of one organism into another, is not proven. Then why believe in Huxley? It's because the alternative, the fixation of life forms, would point to divine spatial creation, which was totally unacceptable. Amazingly, Though he was Darwin's bulldog, Huxley was at no time a convinced believer in the theory he so ardently publicized. This would probably explain in part what Darwin said to Huxley, that he was so good in spreading the devil's gospel, meaning his own views of evolution. Well, what about the philosopher Herbert Spencer? Herbert Spencer born April 27, 1820, and died December 8, 1903, was an English philosopher, biologist, sociologist, and prominent classical liberal political theorist of the Victorian era. He was an avid proponent of evolution, even before Darwin published his Origin of Species. It was Spencer who coined the famous phrase, 
quote, survival of the fittest. He alludes to this concept in his 1864 book, Principles of Biology. Henry L. Tischler, in his book, Introduction to Sociology, says that Herbert Spencer became the most famous philosopher of his time. Spencer also championed the evolutionary notion of Lamarckianism, which is now the defunct view that changes in species occur via acquired characteristics. Lamarck believed that frequent and constant use of any organ gradually strengthens, develops, and enlarges, enlarges that organ so that it gives it a strength proportional to the length of time of such use. These organs will either increase by want or de diminish by disuse, and then these changes are passed on in subsequent generations. The most famous illustration of this is that long-necked giraffes would survive better and therefore their reproduction would prevail over short-necked giraffes who would die out because they could not reach high vegetation. As I have mentioned, this view is now defunct in evolutionary circles, primarily due to Mendel's work in genetics that showed no such thing in inherited characteristics. Spencer's influence in his time was enormous because of the many books on varied subjects. By 1903, an incredible 368,755 volumes of Spencer's writings had been sold. Given Spencer's enormous publications and popularity, his views on God would impact many people. Spencer's father even noted that his son Herbert regarded natural laws in the same way others regarded revealed religion. Herbert Spencer expressed great hostility towards any kind of supernatural intrusion into the natural realm. It was his rejection of any notion of the supernatural that led Spencer to accept evolution. Spencer writes, quote, the special creation belief had dropped out of my mind many years before, and I could not remain in a suspended state. Acceptance of the only conceivable alternative was preemptory. From this time onwards, the evolutionary interpretation of things in general became habitual and manifested itself in curious ways. End of quote. Spencer was no different from Darwin, Huxley, and others. Once a person abandons any notion of the supernatural as the first cause, or as the one who superintends over the natural world, the void must be filled with something, and that something is evolution. In 1855, four years before Darwin published his Origin of Species, Spencer wrote, quote, Save for those who still adhere to the Hebrew myth, or to the doctrine of special creations derived from it, there is no alternative but this hypothesis, or no hypothesis. The neutral state of having no hypothesis can be completely preserved only so long as the conflicting evidences appear exactly balanced. Such a state is one of unstable equilibrium, which can hardly be permanent. For myself, Finding that there is no positive evidence of special creations 
and that there is some positive evidence of evolution. End of quote. Just like Darwin and Huxley, Spencer's anti-supernatural bias was formed before he postulated his views on evolution. This goes to demonstrate that once men abandon the God of Scripture, they will fill the inevitable void with hatred towards God, and their ungodly presuppositions will influence all their thinking. Men who hate God and love the darkness doom themselves to possess darkened, futile minds, even though all the time they are the deluded notion that they can think clearly. We must never forget that Herbert Spencer did as much as anyone in the 19th century to popularize evolutionary thinking. To show how one's presuppositions affect a person's ability to think, consider this statement by Spencer. He said, quote, It is impossible to avoid making the assumption of self-existence somewhere, and whether that assumption be made nakedly or under complicated disguises, it is equally vicious, equally unthinkable, so that, in fact, impossible as it is to think of the actual universe as self-existing, we do but multiply impossibilities of thought by every attempt we make to explain its existence. End of quote. Men in rebellion to God will not bow their knees to King Jesus, no matter what. They will not have God regardless of the fear that swells in their souls. Listen to this sobering comment by Herbert Spencer in a letter he wrote to the Countess of Pembroke on June 26, 1895. He said, quote, It seems to me that our best course is to submit to the limitations imposed by the nature of our minds and to live as contentedly as we may in ignorance of that which lies behind things we know them. My own feeling respecting the ultimate mystery is such that of late years I cannot even try to think of infinite space without some feeling of terror so that I habitually shun the, sh the thought. End of quote. You see, there you have it. Unbelieving men simply refuses to think about God and the possible terror that this might bring. Therefore, men simply dismiss the thought from their minds, thinking that somehow they will make God disappear. Well, as Romans 1 states, professing to be wise, they became fools. Pretending God doesn't exist doesn't make God go away. They will have any an eternity in hell to painfully reflect on their folly. Well, let's discuss some other philosophers impacting the issue of creationism and evolution. In 1925, a symposium of ministers emphatically declared that when science changes, so, much orth so must orthodoxy. These so-called theologians declared, therefore, that the question of origins must be settled by biology, anthropology, and not scriptural exegesis. And much like Bruce Waltke has recently said, the church must be warned against resisting Darwinism. Stanley Beck stated, to call himself reasonably well-educated and informed, 
A Christian can hardly afford not to believe in evolution. And to announce that you do not believe in evolution is as irrational as to announce that you do not believe in electricity. End of quote. Even the supposed Christian philosopher John Hick has said, quote, Creationism can no longer be regarded as a reasonable belief. End of quote. The names of Emil Bruner, Paul Tillich, and Karl Barth were theologians of the 20th century, commonly associated with a theology that came to be called neo-orthodoxy. Bruner said, quote, We have to stress the fact that modern science, and this means the theory of, of evolution, ought not to be opposed in the name of religion. End of quote. Paul Tillich said, quote, Knowledge of revelation does not increase our knowledge about the structures of nature, history, and man. For the physicist, the revelatory knowledge of creation neither adds to nor subtracts from his scientific description of the natural structure of things. If revealed knowledge did interfere with ordinary knowledge, it would destroy scientific honesty and methodological humility. It would exhibit demonic possession, not divine revelation. End of quote. And Helmut Thilicke explains Karl Barth's views on creation when Thilicke states, quote, Faith and science do not contradict each other at all, simply because the, the assertions they make lie upon completely different levels. End of quote. Lyman Abbott sought to synthesize Christianity with evolution. He said, quote, Insofar as the theologian and evolution, evolutionists differ in their interpretation of the history of life, I agree with the evolutionists. End of quote. Nels Ferrer, Emil Bruner, and Reinhold Niebuhr are among those who explicitly charge that we who make the Bible an authoritative teacher in social historical truth are led into foolishness and an idolatrous erasure of the distinction between creator and creation. Those who refuse, refuse to submit to God's word in the area of origins regard those who do as guilty of bibliolatry. End of quote. These philosophers of the past 20th century express something very akin to what we are hearing from the men that I will discuss in upcoming messages. The most telling point is, Scripture is not the sole authority, but science is an independent truth that must be considered equally, equally and in fact the basis for interpreting matters in Scripture on what are scientific issues. And the result? A tragedy of immense proportions for the church. Once Scripture's authority is compromised, then the war is lost. The church becomes like the world, and the gospel is compromised. It becomes abundantly clear that the philosophers paved the way for the grand entrance of Darwinism into the world. Origin of Species was published on November 24th, 1859. The 1,250 copies sold out the first day to the amazement of the publisher. 
The second edition was available on January 7, 1860, a month and a half later. And this second edition of 3,000 copies sold out quickly. George Bernard Shaw said, quote, If you can realize how insufferably the world was oppressed by the notion that everything that happened was an arbitrary personal act of an arbitrary personal God of dangerous, jealous, and cruel personal character, you will understand how the world jumped at Darwin. End of quote. We can get the drift of Shaw's presuppositional worldview with this quote. In Erasmus Darwin's massive work, he displayed great animosity to Christianity. He concluded in his catalog of diseases, credulity, that is, gullibility, superstitious hope, and fear of hell. In other words, we are mentally deranged, said Erasmus Darwin. It is no coincidence that universities vehemently react if evolution is challenged. This was the basis for the movie documentary Expelled, narrated by Ben Stein. The whole intelligent design movement is mocked, and deliberate bias is shown to any professor who does not toe the party line of evolution. And the intelligent design movement doesn't even tout a biblical notion of God per se. Well, let's discuss Darwinism and eugenics. Adam Sedgwick was one of the founders of modern geology, who in 1831 had a young Charles Darwin as one of his students. Sedgwick was critical of Charles Lyell's work in geology, and he never accepted Darwin's view of natural selection. After reading Origin of Species in 1859, here's what Darwin's former professor of geology wrote Darwin. If I did not think you a good tempered, and truth-loving man, I should not tell you that I have read your book with more pain than pleasure. Parts of it I admired greatly. Parts I laughed at till my sides were almost sore. Other parts I read with absolutely sorrow, because I think them utterly false and grievously mischievous. You have deserted after a start in that tram road of all solid physical truth, the true method of induction, and started up a machinery as wild, I think, as Bishop Wilkins' locomotive that was to sell us, uh, sail with us to the moon. Many of your wild conclusions are based upon assumptions which can neither be proved nor disproved, while then express them in the language and arrangements of philosophical induction. End of quote. As Sedgwick saw, Darwinism helped to further brutalize mankind through providing, quote, a scientific sanction for bloodthirsty and selfish desires. On December 24, 1859, just over a month after publication of Origin of Species, Sedgwick told Darwin, quote, there is a moral and or metaphysical part of nature as well as a physical. A man who denies this is deep in the mire of folly. If humanity broke this distinction, it would suffer a damage that might brutalize it and sink the human race 
into a lower grade of degradation than into any which has fallen since its written records tell of its history. End of quote. And yes, Sedgwick was right. Evolution provides the scientific and moral or lack of morality rationale for many to propagate evil. The field of eugenics is the applied science of improving the genetic composition of the human popula uh, population. It seeks to achieve this goal through both encouraging reproduction among fit individuals and discouraging breeding among unfit populations. It has an evolutionary basis, and the means used to achieve this goal is population control by abortion and sterilization. But who decides who is unfit and unworthy to reproduce? Why, those who have the power to subjugate others, that's who. One of the greatest champions of eugenic was the grandson of Thomas Huxley, Sir Julian Huxley, himself an ardent evolutionist. Sir Julian Huxley's 1933 paper entitled The Vital Importance of Eugenics advocated the sterilization of the unfit and identification of carriers of defective, defective genotypes. Huxley argued that the principal goal of eugenics in the short term should be to ensure that mentally, mentally defective individuals cease having children. He advocated in particular for prohibition of marriage of the unfit, segregation of institutions containing degenerate individuals, and sterilization of the unfit. Julian Huxley became the first director of UNESCO. In his personal life, his evolutionary views were consistent. His wife, Juliet, reveals that he fell in love with an 18-year-old American girl on board ship when Juliet was not present, and then presented Juliet with his ideas for an open marriage. Of course, the crowning apex of this prophetic horror that Cedric predicted was seen in the great misery brought to the world through one of evolution's greatest champions, Adolf Hitler. Hitler was an ardent evolutionist, and Hitler was a true believer. He was one probably more consistent than anyone else has ever been. This is why he murdered so many people in the name of trying to perfect a race that would reign for a thousand years. Well, let's discuss Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and eugenics. By the way, do you know that the Bill and Melinda Gates Charitable Foundation, thanks to Warren Buffett's $35 billion contribution, now has an incredible whopping $60 billion to engage in world eugenics through the organization of WHO and other organizations. Gates' father was once the head of Planned Parenthood. It runs in the family to foster eugenics. Bill Gates has openly stated that his organization plans to use vaccines to limit human population. At a Long Beach, California conference, Gates gave a speech on February 18, 2010, titled, Innovating to Zero. Gates said, 
First, we got population. The world today has 6.8 billion people. That's headed up to about 9 billion. Now, if we do a really great job on new vaccines, health care, reproductive health services, we lower that by perhaps 10 or 15 percent. As we can see, Charles Darwin's views were founded in philosophies that preceded him, going all the way back to his grandfather, Erasmus Darwin. It was philosophers like Herbert Spencer. It was geologists like Charles Lyell. It was PR men like Thomas Huxley that promoted the philosophy of evolution. Without these philosophies and influences of other people, Darwinism would never have come to be the influence that it is. And as I've just mentioned, the whole field of eugenics is rooted in evolutionary thought. So we can see that all kinds of ungodly philosophies in men have contributed to the influence of that devil's gospel that Darwin called himself, his views, evolutionary thinking.